Thank you, Abby, and um, good morning to you all. Great to be with you one final time in Ecclesiastes. Um, but let's begin in prayer with a, a prayer from Psalm 119. Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees. Then I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding, and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servant so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. Preserve my life in your righteousness. Amen. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Well, we've come full circle. The teacher began the book with those famous words and he returns to them at the end. His point, in a nutshell, is that all of life under the sun is hebel. It's elusive ungraspable, like mist which looks solid, you can walk right through it, or like trying to grab at smoke, it escapes through your fingers. Life is a gift from God to enjoy, but it's not something that we can conquer or gain. Trying to grab hold of it permanently is vanity. Hopefully we've seen and felt something of that in our journey through this book as we've explored how Hebel challenges the illusions of our modern sense of self and the false hopes preached to us by the voices around us. Hebel, Hebel, says the teacher. Everything is Hebel. As human creatures, we are limited, finite, fragile, vulnerable to strong forces all around us. That's true of our work, pleasure, Time, illness, status, injustice, wealth, youth, aging, dying, and even in the pursuit of wisdom itself. Yet I also hope we've been able to see and to feel, as we said at the beginning of this series, how accepting Hebel is one of the first steps to really living. That sounds paradoxical. And as children of, of Adam, we have inherited that propensity towards self-government, self-gain, self-love. But when we recognize and even embrace Hebel, it enables us to see how we are needy. We're not independent. We are creatures utterly reliant on the God who made us, the God of life. And it's to him that the teacher... Uh, looks to, at the end of his book, one final time he lifts our eyes heavenwards above the sun so that we might know how to live beneath it. The teacher finishes by leading us to the teacher and the shepherd of our souls. So first, he has a word about hearing the shepherd's voice, reading from verse 9 again. Not only was the teacher wise, 
but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads, their collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. I've only ever been into the loft in our house once. Um, I've not really had reason to go up there. We don't store anything in the loft. But on one occasion, not too long ago, I had to go check something on the water tank. And after climbing the ladder and popping my head through the hatch, I could see the water tank. But my route to it was far from clear. There were some boards down, but I wasn't really sure how stable they were. I wasn't sure whether you know, they'd be strong enough to hold me, or if I stepped on them, I'd go through the ceiling. So I stuck to the beams, because they're firmly fixed. I knew that they would hold my weight. Now this wisdom, these words, which we've meditated on for the past six weeks, are much like that. Yes, they were spoken and recorded by an ancient king who lived in a fixed time and place, but the reason we can be sure of them, we can be confident to stand on them, is because ultimately, they're not just human words. They're the words of God. As we've considered, there are many voices under the sun who say things that are changeable and chaotic and contradictory. Uh, just this past week, you may have noticed that um, after winning a gender-neutral Brit award, Adele was slammed for saying that she loves being a woman. If she said that 10 years ago, she would have been held up as a hero. Today, she's blasted for being trans-exclusionary. The ever-changing words and messages of our world are, are a reflection of shifting and uh, the, the shifting and ungraspable nature of the world around us. Well, God's words are also a reflection of who he is. God is holy, he's righteous, he's just. And so his words are radiant. They shine like a bright light, a clear and brilliant light on our darkness. God is unchanging. And so his words are reliable, complete, stable. God is all-knowing, all-wise. And so his words guide into truth. They're a lamp to our path. God is good, and so his words are wholesome, beautiful, delightful. We may not, we may not always see that because we're conditioned to think truth is up for grabs. And we... We might not always like it because it's different to the air we breathe. But even when the shepherd speaks words of correction or, or reproach, the fact is they're not designed to harm but to heal. Like a goad, a, you know, one of those stick spikes that shepherds would have used to, to guide animals along safe passage, leading them to quiet waters. Like strong nails, they they keep us firmly fixed in the way of life. So, for example, when Ecclesiastes has asked difficult questions of us over the past six weeks, when the teacher's not shied away from 
confronting us with the dangers of grasping onto things that don't last or the limits of wealth or the reality of death has been for our benefit, our refining, but also, I pray, for our joy. It's been one of the privileges of my time here at St. Paul's to hear from many of you how the Lord has challenged and comforted you through Ecclesiastes. As we close the series, how, how has the Lord been at work in you over the past six weeks? What's he been teaching you? How has he changed the way you see the world? As he's loosened your grip on things that are hevel, how have you experienced his fatherly care? How has he drawn you closer to Jesus Christ? You know, next Sunday, although we'll be leaving the book of Ecclesiastes behind, we, we won't be leaving the reality of it behind. Uh, we're returning to John's Gospel next week, and specifically to John chapter 10. And there we will see again how Jesus, the eternal Son who became flesh and made his dwelling among us, is the definitive word from God. Like these words before us, his coming reveals God to us. Through him we will hear God speak. In language much like the teacher, Jesus will describe himself as the gate for the sheep and the good shepherd who comes to find us, who cares for us, who speaks to us, who lays down his life for us. So if you want to know wisdom, if you want to hear the shepherd's voice, well, gather around him as we have gathered around the teacher in Ecclesiastes. In actual fact, I should say, continue to gather around Jesus Christ. Because the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is of Christ, who is the wisdom and the power of God. But it's one thing to hear the words of the shepherd and another to walk in them. So the teacher gives us one final exhortation, one final command to abide in the shepherd and his ways. Verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Have, having shown us what life under the sun is, is like, the teacher here describes our purpose in life. The reason for our existence, the duty of all mankind, is to fear God and keep his commands, his commandments. Now, we have in recent months touched on what it means to fear God. And just to remind you, uh, Mike Reeves's book, Rejoice and Tremble, is a wonderful reflection on that subject. Um, but in it, I was really struck and taken with something that um, Charles Spurgeon said, um, who, who Mike quotes. As we rightly fall before the Lord in reverence and awe at his majesty and glory, Spurgeon speaks about falling towards the Lord. You see, the fear of the Lord recognizes the brightness of his purity. God is light, as John says in his first letter, and in him there is no darkness at all. It recognizes the thunder of God's power, as 
Stephen Charnock puts it. But the fear of the Lord also recognizes God's boundless and perfect goodness. The fear of the Lord sees how God is good in the way that he is God. Nothing has made God good. There is no other original source of goodness. He simply is good. And so when we encounter God's goodness, which permeates every single one of his acts, whether in creation or redemption, in fact, we just sang about that in that that song, everything that God speaks and does is good. We're moved and beckoned towards him. Of course, there is nothing in us that warrants dwelling in the light of God's goodness. In fact, quite the opposite. And yet, out of his goodness, God calls us to come and to abide in him through Christ. Jesus says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Fear God. Fall down before and towards him and keep his commandments. It's very easy, isn't it, these days to be cynical and suspicious about authority. Um, We're not short of examples of those who've abused their power or issued demands to suit their own ends, whether in society or in government or even sometimes, sadly, in the church. And in recent months, I'm sure you, like me, have said things like, oh, the rules don't apply to them. It's one rule for us, it's another for them. Those who make the rules can't keep the rules. Sadly, to a greater or lesser extent, that's always going to be the case um, for those under the sun. Remember Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the teacher said we shouldn't be surprised by injustice. So in a way it's understandable that we should be suspicious and even cynical about laws mandated by dishonest lawmakers. But again, not so with God. For God is good. And because God is good, so too are his commands. So the commandments of the Lord are not arbitrary rules designed to do us harm. Their their intention is not our misery. They're given to guide us into wisdom, to, to teach us truth, to restrain evil. The law reflects the lawgiver, who is the Lord. That's why the psalmist can say things like, oh, how I love your law, or describe the The precepts are sweeter than honey. The Lord's commands are good. Now please note, the Lord's commands are still exposing. Like a clear mirror, they show us up, warts and all. And so by its goodness, the law condemns us. Through it, we see how we are all, without exception, unrighteous, which should be deeply humbling. But again, God's commandments are not designed to push us out, but to draw us to the one who fulfills their demands. 
You see, we can't keep God's commandments in the way we should, but wonderfully, Jesus Christ can and has. He has fulfilled all the requirements of the law. In the language of the teacher, he has kept the duty of all mankind. In his humanity, he lived the perfect life and died the perfect death, both of which were on our behalf. Why? Well, so that joined to him by faith, we can share in the son's righteousness and in his fellowship with the father. This is how John again puts it in his first letter. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And a bit later, and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Now, as John says in that same letter, when we receive that love, when we embrace we will um, embrace his commandments. We'll, we'll seek to follow his will, not because we're thrown out of the flock if we stumble, rather because no one who has tasted of the Lord's goodness can ever fail to be changed by it. When you know that God is good, you can only see his commands as a gift from our shepherd, a light and a shield for us, showing us the, the way of uh, as we journey home to him. Truly, there is joy in that. Because when we delight in the law of the Lord, we grow and, and bear fruit. Um, like that song was saying, like leaves on the tree. We, we bear fruit like a tree planted by streams of living water. Fear God. And keep his commandments. That's our purpose, our reason for living. The source of all wisdom and joy in life. So as we come to the end of our journey through Ecclesiastes, I, I wonder how you would have um, expected the teacher to conclude his, his book. And in some ways, the final words in verse 4, 14 might seem rather abrupt, uh, perhaps even harsh um, to our ears. Verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Full stop. Why does he end with a warning of judgment? Where's the joy and the hope in that? Well, as the teacher said in chapter 5, we do need to remember that God is in heaven and we are on earth. God is God and we're not. He's not to be trifled with. God isn't a trinket that we put in our pocket and bring out on Sundays. Remember your creator, said the teacher. We should fear him. But again, even in this warning of God's judgment, we see his goodness. The very fact that he declares a judgment to come 
displays that there is life beyond the grave. All the way through the book, we've heard how life is short, will be forgotten, we're going to die, and you know, it's gone on and on and on. We've really felt our, our limitedness, our uh, finitude. Yet here, in these final words, we're reminded that eternal life does exist. Despite what the voices around us say, our goal in life is not self-preservation. We will die. It's not self-gain. Material things will fade away. It's not finding yourself because everything we are is from God and to him we will return. And it's that assurance of life beyond what we can see, even in this word of warning, which gives us hope. Life enabling hope, freeing hope. Zach Eswine says this, he says, all of this life under the sun has its end in him, and so do we. So, dear friends, lift your eyes above the sun. Accept and embrace Hebel, and look to the sun, the son of God, who forever holds you and me in his uh, strong grip. As we close, I thought we could listen to a portion of Psalm 139. Whatever season you're in, whatever you're experiencing of the world right now, if you belong to the flock of Christ, if he is your good shepherd, these words are for you. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Amen.